Well, good morning. My name is Mitch Clausen, and I serve here as one of the pastors alongside John. Uh, it's, it's a gift to have you with us this morning. Um, my, uh, I guess my title is I'm uh, the pastor of youth and community. As I tell people, that means that I get fired if I don't hang out with youth each week, which is pretty easy for me, and then I do many other things uh, that don't have titles. Uh, so that's me. Again, my name is Mitch. We're really grateful to have you here this morning. Uh, why don't you just join me in a, a time of prayer, and then we'll move into uh, our sermon this morning. Father, we're grateful that you are present with us by the power of the Holy Spirit to become more like the person of Jesus. And I ask and I pray as we learn together what this looks like, that you would give us joy, you'd give us strength, and you would saturate us with the hope of new life. In your beautiful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you've, if you've been here in weeks before... Um, you know that we're in this series on Galatians, and we've been discussing through this book of the Bible, Galatians, uh, how we are invited, we as the people of God, those gathered here today and those who confess to follow and know and love Jesus, that we want a centered way of thinking, of being, and of doing that has Jesus Christ at the center. We believe as a church that we actually need a reminder that at the epicenter of the life of God and the people of God is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who, who wrote Galatians in, in the fourth verse, right near the beginning, he says, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. This is the Jesus at the center, the one who actually extends to us righteousness and grace in order to bring us in, to rescue us from the present evil age. But not only is Jesus the, the distributor of this grace and righteousness over the power of sin, Jesus is drawing us. I still love the image of tides, how the tide just comes into shore. He gathers us through obedience so that in all of our happenings that we have in life, we reflect His likeness and that we are a blessing to the whole world. And we've talked in our series about how Galatians is split, not perfectly, but roughly in two parts. The first talking about the person and the work of Jesus, our understanding of God. We might say our theology. And the last three chapters are talking about how then shall we live? The life I now live, how do we live in faith in the Son of God? Particular to our text today in Galatians 6, starting in verse 7. So if you have your Bibles, I, I encourage you that you can, you can turn there. Galatians 6, starting in verse 7. We're going to be focusing on this question. How do we live in step with the Spirit? How do we live in step with the Spirit and not in step with what Paul calls the flesh? 
put differently, how much of our lives are we living in obedience to the Spirit? And how much are we living in obedience to that which is not touched by the Spirit of God? What Paul calls the flesh. And so, I, I encourage you, for the, stand, uh, for the reading of God's Word, would you actually stand, if you're able? Um, stand if you're able. We're going to be reading from Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 7 and going to verse 10. This is what we read, Galatians 6, verse 7. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Now, I'm not sure about you, but for me, when I read this text, uh, I couldn't help but go into evaluation mode for myself. Immediately, it didn't take me very long. I read this and I just started going, how much of my life am I sowing to the Spirit? How much am I sowing to the flesh? It just became a question throughout the whole week that I would do something and I'm like, oh man, is, which one is this? So naturally, I think that this text can, can just bring up an immediate evaluation of ourselves. And so to, to ease a little bit of that, maybe, uh, or at least to speak to that, I, I want to tell you where, where we're going to be going and then we can work our way there, there together. This is, this is one of the points that I hope... Um, you might take with you during this time and as we go. That our obedience to the Spirit is revealed in our attentiveness to the good. Our obedience to the Holy Spirit is revealed, is shown forth, is exposed by our attentiveness to that which is good. When we are attuned and responsive to what is right, to what is true, to what is beautiful, to what is good, especially in the lives of those around us, we are learning, I believe, what it means to be in step with the Spirit. Because I believe that this passage is really Paul almost answering that question expanding our understanding of being in step with the Spirit, I first think it might be helpful for us um, to lay a bit of a groundwork for Paul's distinctions in this text between the Spirit and the flesh. Starting in chapter 5, and even a bit earlier on, we really see Paul creating this distinction. The flesh and the Spirit. Earlier on in the letter, we see him talk about, the gr- we talk about grace and law, or the work of human beings and the promise of God. But here, what does Paul mean by the Spirit, and what does Paul mean by the flesh? First, the Spirit. Put simply, the Spirit is God's presence in our midst. 
The Spirit is the person of God. The presence of God in our midst. And with this definition come all the characteristics of God of one who is empowering. One who is illuminating. One who is our guide, our helper, our counselor. When we are in the realm of the Spirit, when we are in the realm of God's presence in our midst, the investment of our lives is motivated by the kingdom of God as it is present on earth now. And yet at the same time, it yearns for the presence of God that's going to be coming in fullness. In the fullness of time. We call this the now, the not yet of God's promise to bring blessing. To bring blessing to all people. And yet the Spirit, in small forms but in full forms, shows us this promise of what is yet to come. This is what Paul means when he says the Spirit. This is the transformative and empowering knowing of God through the Helper and Counselor. But what of the flesh? Maybe we hear this and we're like, eee! like you hear the flesh and you're like, I don't like that word. I instantly feel strange and I feel like uncomfortable in this moment. The flesh. The flesh refers to the areas of our life not touched by the presence of God. The flesh represents the areas of our life that are not touched, that are not influenced by the power and the presence of God. John Barclay, he says it something like this. He says, it is the entirety of the environment of our human agency that is not touched by the transformative presence of the Holy Spirit. The entire environment of our agency not touched by God. The flesh. When we are sowing to the flesh, we are putting our investment in areas motivated by the kingdom of self. By the expectations motivated by gaining platform or power or status. Self-reliance. Self-entitlement. Self-fulfillment. Make up the current of the riverbed of what Paul calls the flesh. It might be cloaked in lots of different things in the world, but often it comes to this point that we don't believe that we are fallen sinful people and that we can do as we want and that, what we, that we can get what we want when we want it. Last week, if you were here, Ryan uh, talked about the fact that we, maybe we ought to be more concerned with the culture of our church, of this community, then we are concerned about the culture of the world. Because I think we can point our finger out there saying, we don't want that, that's bad. And yet we're not actually evaluative of what the culture is in this space. Us, one with another. And I think that's what Paul is leading to when he says, how do we be in step with the Spirit? Not by yourself, but as a people. As the gathered people of God. And Paul is convinced That life in the Spirit is possible. Sometimes we feel the tensions within us. And yet Paul's encouragement, just before our text, in Galatians 5, verse 24, this is what he says. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its desires and passions. 
before we even get into our text, I love this assurance from Paul that says, hey, in the work of Jesus Christ, not your work, not what you do, not the good that you're attentive to, but Christ has actually crucified the passion and desires of the flesh within you. But Paul also knows that this is something we have to keep up in cadence with. And he says this in the following verse, if we live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. And so now, in the final stretch of Paul's letter, he asks and answers, how is it that we keep in step with the Spirit? And I, I think he's saying this, that we keep checking if we are attentive and responsive to the good around us. I think that's what Paul is getting at here that we're going to talk about. Are we attentive and responsive to the good happening around us? And so this morning, we're going to go through our text line by line and and just talk about what Paul is bringing up and possibly some of the misconceptions that we might have when we hear these verses. So we start in verse 7. This is what we read. Paul starts off fiery, right out of the gate. This is consistent with him in the book of Galatians. He's just going straight to it. He says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, this he will also reap. Do not be deceived. This word for deceived carries with it this idea of being led astray. Paul's saying, you didn't simply get here because you took a wrong turn turn that you didn't actually know about. You've been tricked into believing that you were heading to the destination of life when really you were on the way leading to destruction. Paul's firm here says, don't be deceived. Something's up. Be attentive. Then Paul goes on to say, God is not mocked. God is not tricked. I had, this, I, I had this image come back to me of when I was in high school and my buddy had a fake ID that he'd try to get cigarettes and liquor with. He's about five foot nine, bleach blonde hair, blue eyes. His fake ID said he was six foot four, dark brown hair. Just nothing consistent. I think what Paul is getting at here is saying, do not be deceived. Your fake ID does not work on God. Put another way, do not be deceived. You cannot deceive God. Again, this is firm, coming right out of the gate. Paul is saying this is important for us to pay attention to. God does notice the aspects of our life that are not impacted by the person and work of Jesus. We can't hide these things behind us as if God can't see past us when we're moving around. And I was challenged that often this mockery of God comes from the people of God believing that they are entitled to a life of abundance, even when they're skimping out on obedience. The people of God who believe they are entitled to abundance when they're skimping out on obedience. I think we're prone to this in the West, in Vancouver. That we believe that God's impact on our life is at worst neutral. At best, it puts us above above everyone else. There's no shortage of God addressing this, especially in the prophet, saying, you think that you're going to eat all of this harvest 
that you grew when really you were running away, adulterous, hiding behind the hills to the shrines of the idols and worshiping them. You will not eat the fruit of the land. I think sometimes for me, at least when I read this, I was like, oh, God, or Paul must be speaking to those who just don't know Jesus. They're, they're the ones deceived, not the people in the church. But Paul here is talking to those who have attested to following Jesus. People that, I don't know if unfortunately, but likely are kind of like us. Gathering weekly with the people of God. Hosting people in our homes. Possibly even opening or engaging with the Word of God. Possibly praying. And to these people, Paul says, don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. I think it's a good time even just for us as a church to pause. I was challenged with this. These people live 30 years after the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. 30 years. And they're still being deceived. Perhaps we might be prone to something similar. Maybe the invitation for us is an invitation to be attentive to the good and to life. But Paul first says, don't be deceived. Moving on in, in, the verse, in the verses of this text, we read this. The one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. As I was thinking about the life of the Spirit, sometimes I can get stuck in this rut of thinking that the Spirit... The Spirit's impact on my life and my obedience only has to do with the stuff that I categorize as sacred. The stuff that has to do with church. The stuff that has to do with reading and prayer. And I can deal with everything else okay if I give the Spirit these sacred areas of my life when I choose that it's convenient. And I think that Again, just speaking for myself, that it's easy for us to look at the lives of the people around us and to think again that we're entitled to to what we've talked about here is the middle class dream. Nothing too extreme, nothing too intense, but we're still entitled to the good. And when when we don't have this from others, when we don't feel like we're being blessed, maybe hardship comes our way, maybe frustration with work, or family life, or in our relationships, difficult medical diagnoses, we start wondering, how can we gain control of this situation of our own power and will? And when we aren't getting these things, we start looking elsewhere. How can we gain control? And I think this is what Paul is saying when we're sowing to things not touched by the Spirit of God in our life. The psalmist in Psalm 73, if you haven't read it, it's, it's, it's worth, a, worth reflecting on. At the start, the psalmist says this, My feet almost slipped when I envied the arrogant. I almost tripped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The psalmist says, when I saw what other people had, it actually drew me to a, spot, a place of envy. A place that I want what they have. And later in the psalm, 
the psalmist says, I tried to understand all this, to reckon how some people are blessed, and I don't feel that way even though I'm giving my all to God. He says, I tried to understand all this. It seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. The psalmist has this moment. When I entered the presence of God, I started to see things as they were. This word for destruction, that's pretty intense. And I think in church, to be honest, a lot of us pull back when we hear the word destruction. We're like, maybe it's not that intense. This word for destruction, when we sow to the flesh, when we sow to that which is not of God, it starts on the interior and it works its way to the exterior. It starts with the natural burnout, the stress, the anxiety, the worry that we feel when we're not meeting or getting the things that we're wanting. And from there, it actually leads to our physical destruction, Paul says. A life apart from the goodness and the work of God by the power of the Spirit. There is no life there. Until we enter the presence of God, any offer of life and satisfaction outside the work of the Spirit is the fake. That's the fake ID that we have been deceived in believing is good. But Paul doesn't sit here. He's making a comparison, and so he moves on. He continues. We read this. But, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. For us, I think this image of sowing doesn't actually hold very much weight in Vancouver. I don't know all of you. I know a lot of you. And you're not currently farming in the city of Vancouver. At best, you may have access to a Vancouver city garden box. And this planter box, which upon failure can be discarded and replaced with a very convenient Save on Foods click and collect system. But for a culture in Galatia that relies heavily on the local produce brought forth, given to the people, Paul says that the deception for this group lies in the location of the investment of their whole selves. Paul says that the deception is that when he's using, maybe I should backtrack, when he's using this idea of sowing seed, he's not just thinking like a couple like zucchinis and like maybe a few of these jalapenos for our life. He's saying the whole investment of their life is placed in the life of the Spirit. And some of you, again, I, I was trying to think, what might have the Galatians been deceived about? Maybe it's a similar deception that we feel now. I've already done that. I've already confessed that I know Jesus. I prayed the prayer. I don't need to do any more. God knows that I believe in Him. Plus, there's a lot worse people out there than me. Just in case. The Spirit knows that I believe. But these seeds that Paul talks about hold an appropriate weight when they represent the individual commitments and decisions that make up the entirety of our lives. Sowing to the Spirit in obedience means letting the power of God motivate every particular area that we have 
from our finances. Not just the big stuff, but how many lattes we buy. Maybe our meal choices for ourselves, for our family, for our homes. The text messages that we send. The daily schedules that we set up. Are they in step and in cadence with the Spirit of God who wants to bless the whole world? Looking beyond ourselves. Not just a good schedule for me, but what actually would God want to use this schedule for for the good of others? This, I believe, is part of this eternal life that Paul is getting at. There's a New Testament scholar named Gordon Fee who actually passed away this week. Great influence uh, for, in scholarship. Um, was very attentive and wrote a lot about the work of the Holy Spirit. And this was a challenging quote that, uh, that I read this week that was in the back of my mind as I was writing. This is what Fee says. It's a good challenge to us. Salvation, this big word. Salvation in the New Testament is not just about saving individuals and preparing them for heaven. Salvation is not just about you. The Spirit is creating a people among whom He can live and who in their life together will reproduce God's life and character. Reproducing God's life and character to bless the whole world. Our obedience, I think again, Paul is getting at, our obedience to the Spirit is shown and it's grown, it's reproduced by our attentiveness to that which is good around us. And Paul leads into this point. After he says, those who sow to the flesh reap destruction. Those who sow to the Spirit reap eternal life. Then he moves on to two encouragements. He says this first in verse 9. Let us not get tired. Let us not get tired of doing good. For we will reap at the proper time, if we do not give up. Some of you heard this and your warning signals just went off. Does Paul want us to do more stuff? Do not grow tired. I'm exhausted now. I think one of the misconceptions, maybe some of the deceptions that we have of the life and the power of the Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is here to minister rest to us. That one deception is that the role of the Holy Spirit, the sole role, is that everywhere the Spirit is, we just get to rest. Whether that's showing up to church, attending community group, your time of prayer, reading, other spiritual practices that you have, our understanding of the Spirit might be twisted to understand that every space that we are in, the Spirit gives us rest. I mean, we're tired from our frustrating boss, raising kids, annoying family group chats, burning our tongue on pizza last night. I mean, it seems as though we have busied ourselves busied ourselves in every area of life. That the only option for gathering as the people of God 
is that the Spirit would be a respite program for us. Maybe palliative care. We're on our way to the end. Just make it comfortable. Make it restful. I'm not trying to use these words lightly. I just think this is a deception that we can believe. Is that this is actually what we're entitled to. That we, as John has talked about, we're spinning all these plates and church and and other spiritual things are one of these plates and they better give us rest or else they're gone. That's their role for us. We get only more frustrated when we feel like the life of the community of believers requires more from us because we have nothing else to give. And please hear me in in this. I am not trying to neglect the real exhaustion that some of you are living. I, I am not trying to neglect that exhaustion. Maybe what Paul is getting at, and I hope this offers maybe as an encouragement, maybe what Paul is getting at in this verse of let us not tire in doing good for we will reap at the proper time. Maybe what Paul is getting at is something beyond the individual. Maybe he's not speaking to us in our own sacred, separate life from other people. Maybe Paul is saying that for the life of the gathered people of God, the church to continue, the church on the whole, must not grow tired and weary from doing good. Through our obedience to the good of others and the obedience of others in the community to do good to us, sowing, when we sow to the Spirit collectively, we will reap the taste of eternal life collectively in the present. Maybe Paul's not saying a slam to you that if you're tired, you're doing poorly. The invitation is, are we as a church attentive to how we collectively can care for those who are tired? Sharing the burden that Ryan was talking about last week. Carrying and sharing our burdens together, sowing to the Spirit as a group and not to the flesh. But I do ask this question before we move on to the the last two or last verse. How much of your being tired comes from sowing to the flesh? And how much is from sowing to the Spirit? How much of your exhaustion comes from you investing time and energy into that which is not, we're not inviting the presence of God into? And how much of our tiredness is coming from the spaces where we have invited God into? I understand that there's areas of life that feel caught in the middle. But that which we are active about, where are we growing tired? Moving on, verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all. This verse is the one that stood out to me the most. As we have opportunity, as the time is right, When the time is what it needs to be, Paul says, do good.
I think it's easy, uh, again, I often just want to speak for myself, it's easy when I see the list, the drop-down list of areas of the church that I could serve in, and I check them off, I keep them in a category that the Spirit couldn't really work in them because those are just the things you need to do. Those are the ordinary things that we need to do to keep this place running. I think we can dull ourselves and not expect that the power of the Spirit wants to maybe draw us closer through these ordinary acts. Not just tied to the programs of the church, but any other thing that we categorize as spiritual or doing good. Maybe let me ask this question. What part of life would some other people call boring that you are just hyper-attentive in? What's an area of life that other people looking would be like, that is lame. I want nothing to do with that. That you're like, give it. I want all of it. I love it. For me, I was thinking about um, my time tree planting. I spent two seasons in northern Alberta tree planting. My first day, so they pay you per tree. First day, I planted 540 trees. Some people are like, man, it's good. You get paid 11 cents a tree. Okay? 540 trees, 11 cents a tree. It's not a lot of money. Could have made more working at McDonald's down the street here and not living in a tent in northern Alberta. My last day, well, it wasn't my last day. My best day of my first season, I planted in one hour the equivalent that I planted in my first day in eight hours. The difference was, and, and I can talk about this for a long time, so I'll try to keep it, keep it short. Your attentiveness to the ground is like nothing else. You can see, when I saw this yellow flower, I knew that the soil there was cream, because every time that I put a, put a tree in the ground there, it was good. When I saw this certain tree type or this moss, you knew that it was a duff shot, that there's no soil, that it just was going to drop down and I was going to get in big trouble for that. My, my attention was so drawn that nothing else, I, I was thinking of nothing else, I was just aware. You don't have to plant in lines anymore. You start seeing the land in shapes and you try to only hop over a log once. You're just hyper-attentive to everything that's happening. And I could plant in one hour what I did in my first day in eight hours. Every day. 250,000 times in my life. Just the same thing. Monotonous, ordinary. Some people would be like, that is terrible. I'd never want to go there. Most people, I would say, that's accurate. But for you, now going back to you, what is something in your life that you're just hyper-attentive to? It just draws you in. Maybe it's the perfect sourdough crumb. Maybe it's paint strokes given by different brushes. Maybe it's stick or ball handling. Maybe it's sewing inseams. Maybe it's coding websites. Maybe it's that you know the key to a good apple crisp. Maybe you know how to host a games night like nobody else. Or you're attentive to moisture levels in the soil and what plants would thrive and where. Maybe how to tune instruments or keeping rhythm. Maybe it's load-bearing walls. Maybe it's creating and organizing Excel spreadsheets that people like me get to reap the benefit of. What are you hyper-attentive to and why? Why are you drawn in? My hunch is that when we're hyper-attentive in the ordinary, the ordinary comes to life. When we're hyper-attentive to the ordinary, 
The ordinary comes to life, and when the ordinary comes to life, we only learn more of how to be adaptive and responsive to what's happening. Coming all the way back, when Paul says, whenever you have the opportunity, do good. My hunch is that there's an invitation for us to grow in hyper-awareness of where is the good here? Where is the Spirit moving? I want to be a part of it. Hyperattentiveness. It's a gift. Brings things to life. And this is what Paul says at the end of verse 10. Especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Paul says, to an unusual degree, be attentive to the good, sowing to the Spirit, especially to the household of faith. When I read this, I I had this moment where I'm like, I think Paul got this wrong. I think the work of the Spirit should be for those outside of the church. Not first those inside. Those outside need to have the goodness of God. So why are we focusing on the people that already know Jesus? I think that if we can't sow to the Spirit inside the body, I don't think anyone else is going to want to join I don't think if we believe that we actually, as a community of believers, like Fee says, are reproducing in the fact of growing in the likeness and character of God to bless the whole world, I don't think anyone will want in if we don't know how to do that amongst ourselves. Believing it. Seeing the good here. Reality, when we sow to the Spirit collectively, we reap of the fruit of the Spirit collectively. When we're attentive to the good, when we call it out, when we lean in, when we receive, us as a group get to rest in the beautiful reality of the fruit of the Spirit. All that Paul has listed in the chapter before. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When we are attentive to the good, all of us reap the benefit of the fruit of the Spirit as a group. And I believe that others will be drawn to that. And so as we end, how might, my question, how might we find and see opportunities to do the good in this community? How might we do that? The good may be for you to share appropriately a burden that's too heavy for you to carry. The good may be to begin learning about your own spiritual giftings in order to eventually use them to build up this community. The good may be to watch one less show of Netflix this week so that you could use that 50 minutes to read Scripture or sit in prayer so that when we come to this space, you have been reminded of this grand story of life and salvation and you might be able to encourage someone else. The good may be for you to ask yourself as you're here in this space when you see someone else, how might I offer encouragement to that person? And if your mind runs a blank, maybe then the good is for you to go and connect with that person and say, hey, would you mind if, like, could I get to know you more? What's a way that I could offer encouragement to you? 
The good may be for you to financially give more than you usually do. Whether to this church broadly, or to an individual that you know that's in need, or another organization that's doing work that you want to support. The good may mean you writing, I love this, a physical card to someone for no reason sharing something that the Lord has encouraged you in. Maybe that's the good for you this week. Maybe the good is for you to offer your love of kids in the form of babysitting. Maybe the good is for you to host others in your home and not feel the need to clean up before. The good may be for you to share some of your story or some of your thoughts in community group. If you're someone who doesn't often. Maybe for you in community group, it's for you not to share and to leave space for others. The good may be for you to appropriately connect with someone younger in this space and start the process of becoming a trusted adult with them. The good may be offering a meal to someone who will never have a meal train. That one sat with me this week. Someone who would never have that opportunity. Maybe that's a way that we do good. Maybe our attentiveness to the good is for you not to book an appointment directly after our gathering so that you can just linger here. Just hang out. Get to know other people. Maybe the good for you is to share some of the happenings in your life with one of the pastors, John or myself or Sarah, and ask where the Spirit's moving. This isn't all. This is just some ideas of how maybe we can be obedient to the Spirit by being attentive to the good. Obedience to the Spirit, I believe, is shown in our attentiveness to the good And when we do good, we all reap the benefits of life everlasting on earth now, even as it is in heaven. Yeah, why don't I pray and then um, the band can come up and I'll give some instructions for our time of communion together. Father, I thank you and I praise you that your spirit gives and offers, extends life to us. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for the invitation that that you're not someone who just blesses us, but actually you desire for us to have our eyes open to how we might care and extend your love and goodness to other people to an unusual degree here at reality with these people at this time and place. So would you teach us to do that? And also would you give us wisdom and humility We thank you for your grace. And we thank you that even in all this doing good, you have done the greatest thing for us by rescuing us, offering your life as a sacrifice that we might be rescued. In your beautiful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.